All right, well, if you've been hanging out with us at all this year, then you know that we have been developing an idea that we're calling Life is Mission. That's it. It's the big idea for the year. And we've been using the book of Acts as the vehicle by which to do that. And so we've been going into this book every single day as individuals, right? Then on Sunday mornings as a church and then in our community groups as well. And we've been looking at this book written by Luke and in which he gives to us a picture of the early church, of this church that was pastored by the apostles and who, as we've also seen time and again and time and again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, turned their whole world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How? Why? Because by that spirit, they learned to live their lives as mission, something that we're trying to do to the same end with the same hopes. But before we go ahead and just pick up our study again this morning in chapter 8, verse 1, I want to go back for a second and I want to look just briefly at the mission again because Jesus gave us a very concise statement of that mission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus Christ, who entered into the world on Christmas, God made a man who on behalf of men lived the perfect life that God requires of us. And having completed that, then took upon himself the sin of all of his people and at the expense of his perfect life, paid fully and completely the penalty for all of our sin. Jesus, who has laid in the grave for three days and on Easter, which we'll celebrate next week, came forth from the grave victorious, not just over sin for us, but ultimately over death for us as well. That Jesus, who has now spent 40 days, by the part, by the part that he makes uh, this statement, proving to his disciples that, in fact, he's physically risen. And look, it would take some proving. But apparently they believed it because almost every one of the apostles went to their grave. They literally died for this fact, for preaching a risen Jesus, this Jesus who's about to ascend into heaven and resume his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from whence he will, what? Send the Spirit upon his disciples. And we've studied and seen all of this. This Jesus calls a last-minute meeting with his guys. He calls them all up onto the Mount of the Ascension, the Mount of Olives, and he says, okay, guys, here's the deal. I'm leaving. One last charge. Here's the mission. Acts 1, verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When I arrive in heaven, I'm going to send the Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon you, it's go time. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then he says, And you will be my witnesses. He doesn't say, And you might want to consider then being coming my witness if it's convenient for you. He says, And you will be my witnesses. Now think about that for a minute. That's a significant statement. You will be my witnesses. Jesus is coming to me and he's coming to you and he's saying, hey, listen, you might be an accountant, okay? Like that's what you do. That's how you're employed. Let me tell you who you are. You are my witness if you're a follower of me. You may be a dentist, but you are my witness. You may be a garbage man, but you are my witness. You may work at a restaurant, but you are my, my witness. Be a musician or a pastor, but you are my witness. Listen, you might not work outside of your home. You're a stay-at-home mom, which means you work harder than all the rest of us. And... You are my witness. He's making a statement, not just about what we ought to go do, but about who we are fundamentally, constitutionally saying, if you are a follower of mine, you are my witness. And as an aside, what do witnesses do? Think courtroom with me for a minute. Your Honor, I'd like to call my next witness. We're going to swear him in and he is going to give what? Testimony. 
Witnesses give testimony. That's what witnesses do. And in this case, they give testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ was not just a great teacher, a great prophet, a guy that once lived and was really famous. And wow, what a great movement he left behind. But in fact, that Jesus Christ is God-made man and that Jesus Christ lives. And consequently, consequently, there is one name under which, under heaven by which we must be saved. And it's his The message of the apostles, the message of this early church that we've been studying, the message of the Christian church throughout all the ages is the message of a risen Christ in whom alone is salvation. And here's the thing. Back in this first century, these folks that we're studying, okay, okay, when they went out preaching that message of a risen Jesus, they went out knowing that in doing so, they were risking their lives. It wasn't just going to be kind of awkward, you know, talking to so-and-so on the street. They might die. In fact, if you were here with us last week, what happened? One of them died. This man, Stephen, was executed for preaching Christ. Now, we don't risk or run that risk today in this country. But our brothers and sisters in other countries around the world oftentimes do. This stuff continues to this day. Now, we don't risk our lives, generally speaking, for telling people about Jesus, but I do want to talk about the fact that there is risk. It is a risky endeavor to talk to people about Jesus, isn't it? And I'll tell you, the first thing that you're going to risk in talking to somebody about Jesus is your relationship with that somebody. That is a risky deal. I watched my wife last month take a risk with her dad. That's a tough one. Her dad's like 80, 81 years old. It was his birthday at the end of the month in February. He's actually a leap year baby. So he was born on February 29, uh, which is kind of cool. But anyway, he is not a believer in Christ. He's very, very like scary smart. He's a medical doctor. He has a photographic memory. He reads, and I'm not kidding, Stephen Hawking physics books for fun. Seriously. No joke. He has made it very, very, very obviously clear that he's not really all that interested in talking about Jesus and talking about Christianity and or any of those kinds of things. In fact, he thought, when I left the law business to come do this, he, like, I think he thought, are you in a cult? I mean, what are you doing? This is bizarre. I mean, he had no category for that. Do you have a category for that? Because you should. So anyway, last month for his birthday, she sent him Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's the book that we've been selling here at cost for the last couple of years. It's an absolutely awesome book. It's like, what does the Bible say about this, and then 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 this man who is very fickle with his affections, very fickle with his affections, called her up and said, I got this book. Are you trying to convert me? And she said, well, Dad, actually, um, yeah. That's exactly what we're trying to do, you know. She said, I I feel like you have all these ideas and thoughts and conceptions about Christianity, and frankly, I think that most of them are not right. You know, they're based on your experience as a kid and all that stuff. I want you to study Christianity the way that you study Ayn Rand. I want you to study Christianity the way that you study Stephen Hawking's. I want you to look into it because... We have found something, someone in this Jesus, and we'd love for you to have that something or someone. So here's the question. When are we going to hear from him next? It's risky. It's risky. 
We've been showing a video in our personal evangelism training, which incidentally takes place on the third Saturday of every month. And um, it's like a couple hour deal. And it's a video of an atheist. He's a performer, and he tells this story about how somebody came up to him after one of his performances. He guessed the guy had come two nights in a row, so he came the second night and waited for him, and, you know, he saw the guy waiting for him. So he went over to talk to him, assuming, I guess, that he would sign some kind of an autograph, and I don't know, maybe he did. But the guy gave him a Bible. He's a Christian businessman, and he shared his faith with him. And he said, you know, openly, look, I, I guess what I'm trying to do is proselytize you. I'm trying to convert you. And what's fascinating to me is that the man who is an atheist who does not believe in Christ is totally all in on proselytizing. He was not at all offended. He said, you know, the guy was sincere. He was genuine. I mean, I didn't buy it, but he was a good dude. And he said, here's the thing, how much, and this is his language, must you hate someone to, on the one hand, believe there is an eternal place called heaven and an eternal place called hell, and Jesus Christ is himself the difference eternally between the two and not tell them about it? And you say, well, you know, I mean, I don't hate that person in my office. I, I just, I don't hate that person in my family. I don't hate that person in my neighborhood. I just don't love them more than fill in the blank. More than... I love feeling comfortable as opposed to, golly, this is going to be awkward, man. As much as I love keeping the peace, and I like keeping the peace. As much as I love, it's a tough deal. It's sobering when you put it in those terms. Put it in those terms. And I know what you want to say. You want to say, well, Tom, you know, you're a pastor. It's easier for you. Okay, maybe. I mean, first of all, when somebody finds out I'm a pastor, they're kind of more or less expecting that conversation, which is why all of our conversations are cut so short. <laughs> You're a pastor, got to go. <laughs> it's like, I don't have anything else to say to you at that point, because apparently I'm only capable of talking about one thing, you know? And maybe it's easier because I've done it, a little more experienced. Perhaps, but it's still awkward, it's still uncomfortable, it's still difficult. I still know that probably they're not interested, at least initially. But I'm also oftentimes amazed what the Lord will do with a conversation like that. If His Spirit is saying, hey, you know what? Yep, it's go time. You're my witness. You know what witnesses do? Because we said it out loud a minute ago. They give testimony, even when it's risky. And you'll risk. You'll risk relationships. You'll risk comfort. You'll risk feeling awkward. You will risk the perception of your sanity. People will think that you're nuts. Like, seriously, should you operate heavy machinery? Can we give driver's licenses to these? People wonder about this stuff. Risk your time. Risk your resources. These guys risk their lives. Here's the deal. Jesus is saying, listen, if you are one of my followers, you may be an accountant, a dentist, a garbage man, a stay-at-home mom, or whatever. But let me tell you who you are. You are my witness. Now get out there and give testimony. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses And in, for them, Jerusalem, or in our, our case, for us, Fort Lauderdale. And then he says, and in all Judea, that's the outlying areas, if you will, the southern part of Israel, around Jerusalem, in our case, I don't know, South Florida, I guess you could say. But then he says this, and it's very, very important for the story that we're going to look at. He says, and in Samaria. 
Guys, Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, went to Samaria. That's where he met the woman at the well. Stuck around a few days. Preached to their whole village. So he left them the example of this, and now here he specifically commands them to go there. He doesn't say, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and to the ends of the earth, and, you know, I mean, that obviously that would include Samaria. No, 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 he calls it out specifically, <laughs> and to Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. Okay, so that's the mission, and we've been studying what they've been doing, and what have we seen? Well, we've seen that these guys are all fired up, they are jacked, they are passionate, they are strategic, they are big time into evangelism in their Jewish city, and in the Jewish outlying areas, perhaps, of Judea as well. But even though they are a big church with a big budget and all kinds of people, at least thus far in the story, not one person, not one has taken the gospel to Samaria or has shown any interest whatsoever in doing so. Now, why is that, do you think? Jesus went there. He said, go there. I think the answer is probably because for centuries, the Jews, and these are Jewish Christians in this church in Jerusalem, have hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans at this point in history, for centuries, had hated the Jews. They were divided religiously, ethnically, socially. They had committed acts of terrorism upon another. So when they put the sign-up sheet out at church, mostly probably just out of obligation, I mean, you know, Jesus went there and he specifically said, and to Samaria. So, like, the sign-up sheet just sat there week after week after week after week after week after what, 25,000, 35,000 people just walked by? Nobody's interested in going to Samaria until today. The story here changes today. And what I want you to see is why. Or really, what I want you to see is how. How is it that God gets these people to take his gospel to Samaria? And I'm going to give you the answer up front. The answer is through suffering. That's it. So the big idea for today is that life is mission, and God often advances his mission in us and through us through suffering. There is a territory that God wants to take in us. There are issues that he wants to deal with in us. He needs to advance his mission in us. Okay, yeah, oftentimes through suffering, but not just in us. Now, there are people that he wants us to take the gospel to, even those that we might call Samaritans. How does he get us to do that? Well, oftentimes through suffering. So we pick up our study today in Acts 8, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says, and Saul approved of his execution. Okay, time out. If you missed last week, you're going, who's Saul? Who got executed? We'll deal with Saul when we get to chapter 9 in detail. So let's wait on him. The one who was executed is Stephen. The preaching arisen Jesus, Stephen. The taken outside the gates and stoned to death, Stephen. But what we're going to see right now is that it doesn't end with Stephen. It begins with Stephen. Notice what else happens. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, and then Luke says, And there arose on that day, meaning the day of his execution, a modest amount of persecution. No, a great 
persecution against the church where? In Jerusalem. And what happens as a result of this persecution? As a result of this suffering, it says, and they, meaning these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who have been all about evangelism within their ethnicity only. Well, they were all scattered. And they were scattered through the region of Judea. And Luke specifically says it, Samaria except the apostles who had great risk to their lives, no doubt, stayed in the city of Jerusalem to maintain the integrity of that church and to oversee the movement from there. But these guys just scattered out of there. And then we read that devout men buried Stephen and they made a great lamentation over him. But Saul, who again we'll deal with in chapter 9, but look at what he's doing. And what's the next word? Saul was ravaging the church. The word ravaging is very, very vivid. In the Greek language, it comes with a picture. And the picture, and you've seen this on TV, like National Geographic and stuff, you know, you watch the tigers and they kill their victims and they devour their bodies. The devouring of the body by a wild beast. That's your image. That's not a mild image. Saul was ravaging, he was devouring the church like a wild animal and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then Luke says, now those who were scattered as a result of this great suffering learned their lesson and they just quit talking about Jesus because look at what that might bring you. Witnesses give testimony. even when it's difficult. He says, now those who were scattered as a result of this great suffering went about preaching the word. There it is. And then he says, and Philip. Okay. This guy we met in chapter 6, like Stephen, a deacon in the church. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. I think what that really ought to say is to a city in Samaria, the idea being lots of cities, and he went to one. And what did he do? He proclaimed even to the dreaded Samaritans the Christ. And the crowds, I mean, the Spirit is with him, so watch this. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. He came doing miracles, and God is authenticating this message by doing miracles here through his messenger. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame. So he's dealing with the spiritual ills of the city, and he's dealing with the physical ills of the city because these people were healed. And so as a result, there was much joy in that city, which is what happens when the gospel comes to a city through the people of God with the anointing of the Spirit of God and deals with its physical and relational and spiritual ills. But what I want you to see is that Philip would have never gone to that city apart from the persecution and suffering. Life is mission, and God often uses suffering to advance His mission. And again, that's true both in us in what He wants to do in us to make us more like Jesus. And it's true through us. So, for example, I think that God often breaks us of our materialism, of the worship and service of things above the Creator who in grace has given us those things by taking those things away. I've seen that happen. I think He breaks us of that as well sometimes by taking those things in life to us that seemed and tasted so sweet to us and making them turn to sand in our mouths, revealing their futility 
I think he breaks us of our pride by humiliating us, of our self-sufficiency by making us weak and unable to trust in, to lean on our own strength anymore, leaving us with no option but to cry out to him. I think he breaks us of our vanity by exposing our flaws, and I think he also drives us out amongst people that we have labeled as Samaritans for whatever reason, political differences, religious differences, ethnic differences, lifestyle differences, by giving us a Samaritan as a son or a daughter, a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law, a close friend, a close co-worker, somebody that we can't avoid and we cannot, frankly, help but to love and whose humanity and brokenness and need for Christ we come to appreciate even as that sort of shines a light on us and we see our own humanity and brokenness and need for Jesus. It drives us to go places we would never otherwise have gone and to speak to people that we would never have otherwise signed up if the sign-up sheet was in the back. Life is mission, and God often uses suffering to advance His mission, which means that if you don't get that and analyze it in light of that, you will miss the opportunity. You'll miss it. I made a, whole, I made a list of all these different ways to miss it. You will waste your suffering if all you do is focus upon in the midst of your suffering, if all that you focus upon in the midst of your suffering, sorry, is what you're losing or what you've lost. And you fail to focus as well on the great opportunity for gain in your suffering, both as a result of your growth in the likeness of Jesus and in the ministry opportunities that it presents to advance his kingdom. And you will waste your suffering if your suffering does not make you think about and live in light of and long for heaven, which is the end of the mission, and to think about it and to live in light of it and to long for it, not just for yourself, but for other people, even for Samaritan people, as you would describe them. I think this all means that you will waste your suffering if you do not allow your suffering to cause you to examine what you value. And to begin to value God's purposes and God's kingdom and God's mission to lost people more than you do your relationships, your comfort, the perception of your sanity, your reputation, time, career, treasure, and even your life. I think it means that you will waste your suffering if you spend more time reading about the cause and cure of your suffering than you do reading about God and the missional purposes that He has for you in the midst of your suffering. I think it means that you will waste your suffering if you allow your suffering to cause you to doubt the character of God or to cause you to anchor your soul or your life to anyone or anything other than God and His missional purposes for you and for your life. It means that you will waste your suffering if you refuse to believe or to acknowledge that your suffering has been specially designed for you by your sovereign, loving, heavenly Father and for the express purpose of advancing His mission in you and through you. That is to say, you will waste your suffering if your only goal in the midst of it is to somehow get through it as opposed to embracing it and by faith saying, okay, God, you have designed and given this to me. I didn't go looking for it. I don't like it. But what do you have for me in this? What do you want to do in me? through this? What do you want to do through me through this? 
Life is mission, and God uses suffering to advance his mission, just like he does here with Philip. And again, what's the result? Well, we read again in verse 8, it says, And so there was much joy in that Samaritan. That's like shocking, shocking city. But he's not done. So now he's going to tell us about a guy named Simon. He says, but... It's kind of a word of contrast, isn't it? But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. He's an illusionist in the city. And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic, I would say, tricks. You know, when you roll back into the Old Testament and you see Moses and he comes to Pharaoh and, and Moses does some magic, if you will, but legit miracles... There's a difference between what Moses does and the plagues that come and all these kinds of things and the magicians of Egypt. There's a difference here between what Philip is coming and doing by the power of the Holy Spirit and what Simon has had a history of doing. And so it says they paid attention to Simon because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic, I would say, tricks. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women, and even Simon himself, I'm going to put it in quotes, believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles that far surpassed his own magic tricks is the idea, I think. Being performed, he was amazed. Now hang on to that. Because then Luke says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, what do you think they were saying? I think they were saying, oh my goodness, really? Like, I think they were incredulous. I think they found this hard to believe. I think it was difficult for these Jewish Christians who for so many centuries have been set off against these Samaritan people to believe that God would receive these Samaritan people at least in the same way that he obviously had received them. Okay, so I don't think they're actually Christians, but even if they are actually Christians, they're not like we are, right? And they send a delegation, a really awesome delegation, to go investigate. They send Peter, who is the preeminent apostle, and they sent John, who, as you read back through the Gospels at one point, together with his brother James, had sought to call fire down from heaven to consume a Samaritan community. So... You know, like if he's going to buy it, then it must be legit. They sent to them Peter and John, and Peter and John came down and prayed for these Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit, at least in the same miraculous, manifest, obvious way that, well, that they had received him, for the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them in that same way, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so then when Peter and John laid their hands on these Samaritans and prayed for them, what happens? They received the Holy Spirit. And how do you suppose that everyone knew that they had received the Holy Spirit? Well, because, again, he came upon them just as obviously, just as clearly, just as miraculously, in all the same kinds of ways that he had previously come upon the apostles and the 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. The only question is, why did he wait? 
Why did the apostles have to come down? Why did they have to lay their hands? Why did he not only come after they prayed? There's something very unique going on here. And an answer to that, I think, is that God, better than anyone, knew the animosities that existed between the Jewish community and the Samaritan community. And he knew that unless he came upon the Samaritans every bit as obviously as he had come upon the Jewish Christians, that the Jewish Christians would forever look at the Samaritan Christians and go, eh, you know, look, I know you guys made a profession, but where are the signs? Where the, you know, God never authenticated your, you're not sincere, true believers. You're not really our brothers and sisters. And we're all kind of cool with that, actually. So that's part of it. The other part of it is, I think he waited for the apostles to come down, their hands, their prayers, for it to occur before their eyes, for them to be able to take back that testimony with their voices to this Jerusalem church, because he knew that unless he did it that way, the Jerusalem Christians who were Jewish would always look at the Samaritan Christians and go, you know what, we're real disciples of Jesus because we have the apostles. You have some guy named Philip, and we didn't even authorize him to go over there. Well, not anymore. It's really wonderful what the Lord did here. He waits for the apostles to arrive, for them to lay their hands and authenticate the faith of these people, for them to pray for them, and then He comes upon them just as miraculously as He had done for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Okay, but now Luke takes us back to Simon, because Simon's taken this in, man. Simon is thinking about his ticket prices for his traveling magic tour, and he sees how this plays out with the apostles. It says, now when Simon, who's calculating those prices, saw that the Spirit was given, at least in this unique instance, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. This is where we get the word simony in church history. The idea being that you can buy your way into heaven, into salvation, into the gifts of the Spirit, into anything having to do with God. He sees this and he says, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands can pay me a thousand dollars. Oh, yeah, and then may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, and listen to the severity of this statement. This is like not what you want to hear coming out of the mouth of like anyone, but Peter, he says, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain. And then here's the key word, the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God if you think you can purchase this stuff, either with your money or with your efforts or with your service or with your anything. Repent, therefore, he says, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see, he says, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity which practically speaking means that you can make a profession of faith that you can be baptized, that you can join the church that you can gather, plug in and serve but if you don't get the fact that you're standing before Almighty God is entirely based on what Jesus did not what you did. You're not a believer. You can't earn the favor of God by being a good person. You can't purchase it by doing acts of service unto Him or making big donations or... Christ alone buys your salvation 
And he comes to you and says, here, acknowledge me as Savior and Lord by faith and be saved. But here's the deal. That's painful. That involves suffering. And I say that because here's what that requires. It is a painful thing for you to see yourself and your sin, not as your friends see you, not as your family sees you, not as you see you, not as society sees you, but as the eyes of a perfectly holy and righteous God sees you. That's traumatic. Isaiah steps into the presence of God and he says, Woe to me, pronounces a curse upon himself. He says, I am undone. I'm coming to pieces, is what that means. I'm fracturing. I'm dissolving. And by anyone's standards, other than God, he was a pretty righteous guy. It's traumatic, and it's traumatic, and it just gets worse, because here's the next realization. I can't do anything about it. I can't go back and undo what I've done. I can't go back and unsay what I've said. I can't, as we talked about a few months ago, flip through my life like a book, you know, and get out the magical whiteout and white out all the stuff that may be offending to God. There's not enough whiteout to do that with anyway. But here's the thing. Life is mission, and God often uses suffering to advance his mission. And in that instance, what he's doing is he's using the trauma of those realizations to cause you to cast your eyes and your hopes and all of your trust entirely upon the one who alone is perfect in the eyes of Almighty God, who lived that perfect life and died as the full satisfaction for all of your sins and mine, for all who put their faith in him and rose from the dead. See, that's how he advances his mission in us. It's a beautiful thing, really. And Simon here, too, is traumatized, though we don't know really whether he ever came to authentic faith in Christ or not. We simply know that he said this, verse 24, Simon answered. He's shaken by that statement. He says, pray for me to the Lord that that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Amen to that. And then Luke says, now when Peter and John had testified, because that's what witnesses do, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem and notice what they do on the way home. It's wonderful. Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans and in doing so, no doubt opened the floodgates of missionaries into Samaria and then beyond to the ends of the earth. So life is mission, and God often uses his suffering to advance, or suffering to advance his mission. And uh, so I want to close with just two questions. The first question is this, how are you suffering? That's usually not a difficult question, right? I mean, you're going, and it's this. But some of you are like, well, you know, pick your favorite. How are you suffering? All right, here's the real question. How is God trying to advance his kingdom in you, first of all, through that? And then how is God trying to advance his kingdom through you, through that? Because if you're not asking those questions, if you're not prayerfully interacting with the Lord on that day by day in this season of life that you're in, you're going to miss it. Don't miss it. 
Don't waste your suffering, okay? All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that um, you are a God uh, who brings light out of darkness and life out of death and order out of chaos. And God, you thrill to take things that look so despairing and bring things out of them that are so eternally wonderful. We pray, God, that by faith we might believe that that's what you're doing with us. Lord, that you're reaping things, a harvest that is far more valuable than the comfort or the dreams or the health or the whatever it is that, that is being sacrificed in a season of suffering for us. God, open our eyes and attach our hearts to you. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit that we might have the power necessary to embrace what you're doing in our lives. And in embracing it, find it purposeful, find it meaningful, and find it useful for your kingdom. What do you want to do in us, Lord? And what do you want to do through us? Awaken us to the reality that we are your witnesses. And God, let us give testimony through whatever means you hand to us for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Ryan said, Matt's out of town, so I'm going to give you the outro. And uh, I really hope that you guys read your emails. I know that some of you get a lot of emails from us and a lot of other emails as well, but there's so much happening in the life of this church. And if you're not reading the emails, trust me, you're not getting all of it because we can't talk about all of it. So there are things with Rio men coming up, know that. Rio women coming up, know that. Marriage workshops, Israel trip, you've got to look at this stuff. But I want to feature two things today. Number one, our Easter week schedule. That's this week. It's awesome. So next Sunday is Easter. Please do your personal worship and come ready to worship, okay? And invite your friends. Bill Kelly used to say to me, you know, everybody goes to church on Easter. He said, I just figured I'd invite them all to come with me. And I thought, you know, that'll do, right? So do that. This Thursday night, we have our Monday Thursday service, 7 o'clock, right here. It is a communion service. It's the most intimate and, I think, awesome communion service we do all year. Uh, we'd love to see you be a part of that. Uh, the Good Friday Seder, like so many things that are happening around here, is sold out. Sorry. Um, but that's going to be awesome. So glad we're doing that. Uh, the Easter extravaganza is Saturday. Okay, It starts at 10. It ends at 1. It includes lunch. It is a great opportunity for you to reach out to friends, neighbors, family, whatever. It's like totally no pressure. It's not going to be awkward. Okay, It's an Easter egg hunt at the church, and we'd love for you to bring them. We will have hundreds of little kids running all over the property, and, uh, and it, there will be much mirth. I will just say that. And then next Sunday, 9 and 11, bring your friends. All right? Okay, last thing. If you're going to Haiti this Tuesday and you're here, would you guys come on up here? Just come in front of the stage. Come on, you can do it. You know, we've been talking about life as mission and, and taking our lives and getting out of our comfort zone. If you just turn that way and face those guys. Um, and Haiti is the example you know, we want to give you the opportunity. This is the first of four opportunities to go to Haiti, not just to see what God will do through you in Haiti, though that's a big part of the deal. 
but also to see what God will do in you in Haiti. Haiti will leave you different. And so I want to pray for these guys. They're going Tuesday. Uh, You can follow. I think we're going to have a blog online on our website, so you can kind of follow and get daily reports and see how they're doing. But pray for them throughout the course of this week. They come back on Saturday, so the day before Easter, and uh, and then they're going to come back and teach us how really to worship, I think, when they get back. It's going to be palpably different um, as a result of their trip. And I want to say to you guys who are going, um, ask the Lord as you go, what is the thing? Maybe it's three, but I just ask for one that he wants to show you, that he wants to reveal to you, that he wants to do in you. Why does he have you on this trip? Um, Okay? All right, let's pray for these guys. God, I thank you uh, for these men and women who have have dedicated this next week uh, to leaving the comforts of their homes, the comforts of their families, the comforts of their schedules, the comforts of air conditioning, the comforts of their friends and offices and all of these things, Lord, placing their life on hold to be made uncomfortable for your glory. We pray, God, that your Spirit will be upon them as they go. God, that he will keep them safe, that he will keep them you know, healthy and all of those things, but, Lord, that he will use them. God, let them go as our servants here, as your servant there to the people in Haiti, and reveal yourself, God, to them and, Lord, through them as they minister amongst those people. And do indeed bring them back different, Lord. Do that for your glory, we pray, and for the good of your people here too. So may your blessings go upon each one of them, and may your blessings be upon their families too as they leave them behind. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Really excited about that. All right. Okay, if you would stand for the benediction, for the good word. The Apostle Paul says this in Titus 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, how? In Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, which is what? Retirement? What is it? It's the return of Jesus, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, that's you, who are zealous for good works like going to Haiti and talking to people about Christ. And then he ends with this. He says, declare these things. Now, why do you do that? Because that's what good witnesses do. Go in peace.